Bruce, space.com. What's going on with the Evo grid currently? Well, a little innocent interview that I did at the origin open questions on the origin of life conference in Spain that, uh, turned into this story uh, that was ostensibly for Astrobiology magazine. And then the Leslie Mullen, the reporter, was very good, I think. Um, she uh, offered it through the normal channels. It got picked up by Space.com and MSNBC. So there you have it. It's, it's basically propelled the Evil Grid as a meme into a global audience. Cool. So I asked this question of Jeffrey. Uh, I asked this question, sorry, of, of Gerald, and I think I've asked it of Jeffrey in the past as well. How do you take the immense public interest that you get through a story on space.com or some other resource and channel it into something productive in the long term, Bruce? What's your thinking on that? Oh, well, you hope that uh, serious people show up at the wiki or the join the mailing list. Um, for me personally, I, I just want to have some awareness where, you know, I've done this multiple times in the past with different projects from the Digibarn to at landing people on asteroids and stuff, and and you, what you want to have is when you when you meet people, they they know the name, they know the they you know they know Digibarn or they know Digital Space or they know uh, whatever or no further or things like that, and they 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 can say, oh, you're that person from that project, I know about it vaguely or tell me more, and and if you can get that kind of backdoor awareness, the back of the closet awareness. Uh, it's a real door opener. Now, hopefully it's not a negative uh, association. I, I think what interests me in terms of the kind of broader public understanding of artificial life, and I think the Evo grid is part of this, is that there is a huge degree of public support out there in terms of what we do. In a kind of, you know, when I describe, you know, what we do, when people hear the Biota podcast, when they hear interviews and kind of, filter through, and I'm sure through this space.com, certainly in the discussion in the comment feed, there's a broader sense of people that may not be, you know, doing the kind of stuff that we do with artificial life, but just have an appreciation that there are people such as yourself and Jeffrey and, and Peter out there doing this work. And I think that's an amazing positive plus in the long term that these articles come out and give a sense of people, oh, yes, people are actually doing that interesting stuff. I think what interests me through the comments in particular is all the comments related to Biota Lives in the past. <laughs> the, the questions, the ideas of how do we remove the human hand from the simulation, you know, this is great, but, and a series of related questions all seem to have been covered in the, um, we're coming up to 50 Biota Lives next show, Bruce. Okay. Yes, 50. So I think it's an interesting, uh, in terms of the kind of broader public understanding of artificial life and certainly what you're doing with the Evo grid, that's certainly the case. But in terms of, you talk about the right kind of eyes coming through with the view that I guess you want the assistance of uh, high-level people like, you mentioned Freeman Dyson in the article, but I mean people of that nature looking at the Evo grid. But in terms of the kind of readership of space.com, do you see there being open source people? What kind of people do you see that would, would come to it and kind of leave a, a longer-term legacy associated with the Evo grid? Well, certainly Space.com attracts nerds and weenies of all sorts, uh, including techies, dreamers, would-be space people, a lot of aerospace engineers, 
systems engineers, uh, sci-fi buffs, uh, sci-fi fantasy buffs, some gamers, uh, general sort of heavy, heavy on the visionary side of technology people. Uh, you know, like somebody like Will Wright goes to readspace.com all the time, and you know, important people go and look at it. Uh, and they have a science branch uh, that Dave Brody, who's the guy that kind of manhandles everything there. Um, so there, it, it's it's a really great site. It's really been well put together, and and uh, it has a huge archive now of stuff. So I, I think it's an important constituency. Certainly. Certainly. What I found, and the best overlap that I found with regards to the Biota community is when I was interviewed on Floss Weekly, because there, as you say, you have a particular kind of tech nerd who's, uh, you know, very much in the kind of open source vein that information needs to be free and it's the right kind of information. And, and it always interests me, particularly from your experiences with, with New Scientists and Scientific American and, and all these kind of popular publications, how it really does reach out to the broader public in the sense that there was a warm, fuzzy, at least there was a group of wonderful people out there doing artificial life development. But I'm always interested in whether we can do you know, publicity associated with very specific groups within these broader articles. In terms of the interview for space.com, how would you tune it in the future? I mean, if there are going to be a series of, of articles on space.com associated with the Evo grid, how would you like to tune them in the future? Well, what was interesting is in San Sebastian at the Palacio Miramara, there was a, a, a confluence of people. There were people doing a chemical-based protocell development. There were uh, people who had done artificial life development from the 80s and 90s. Uh, there were philosophers. Uh, there was no people with a religious or spiritual bent. But and then there were the astrobiologists, who are you know life in the universe people, and so. Within that context, I think the Evo Grid can actually speak to different constituencies. And there's even somebody from biomedical research that commented saying, if you build an Evo Grid, it will become a general purpose, a chemical experimental engine, a simulator like a flight simulator. We can try experiments hmm. out before we do them in the lab. It'll revolutionize chemistry. And he, he was adamant. He says, don't you know? Don't misunderstand me. What you're building is very, very important for chemistry. And, and so in a sense, where I found myself was in the opportunity to to say, hey, this is an artificial, soft artificial life project with heavy connections to uh, chemistry, applied chemistry, uh, an effort to shed light on the origin of, origin of life itself. One of the researchers said, basically, what you're doing is the only thing that's going to help us in the next, you know, decades. You are taking the tack that is the only way forward for origin of life research. This was Doran Lanset from the Weizmann Institute in Israel, and he was adamant about that. Um, and but at the same time, the article could talk about visionary things like where is life in the universe and our origins, and but come back to potential value in, in biomedical research. So it, I found myself at a confluence of things. I wasn't just talking about. I was talking about a project that is artificial life within a much bigger context to which it has because it is relevant. And in terms of kind of bringing along the artificial life community for the ride, how do you see the Evo Grid working in the future, bringing the kind of 
discussion that goes on in Biota Live and goes on even, I think, in the broader kind of uh, academic artificial life community. I mean, how do you see the, these, these communities coming along with the Evo grid? Oh, I, I could see having, for instance, Doran Lancet on the program. I could see getting Stuart Kaufman. Uh, in a sense, like virtual worlds, I think the EvoGrid is a magnet, it is a strange attractor that will pull in many different people who found it interesting, and and they will join the effort. Like our original Biota Conference, Digital Burgess, and the other ones did. Um, this we're creating we're creating almost a, sort of a signpost or a we're creating an agora for many people to come in a, a, a marketplace or a, a town center that. That has many streets out to different, different uh, walks of life and engineering disciplines and whatever. And if, if you create a successful agora and attract people in, then then you can really get momentum on a on a project and and create it. You, this is the birth. I think it's the birth of a new field. And Steen basically said that last year when I was in Denmark, saying we we need to do a track on this at Artificial Life 12 because it's the birth of a new subfield. That is, has connections everywhere, and and so we're planning that at the end of August for a Life 12 is to have a, a dedicated track to this kind of thing, and therefore birth it as its own standalone entity. And in terms of the time frame, as as Bruce Damer, the PhD student, and moving more into this kind of summoning the Evo Grid narrative, has your time frame changed from when we talked with you, you know, two or three months ago, associated with when you know, when things will move forward with the Evo grid, is it based on funding or are you just going to continue with the summoning until it gets to a critical mass? Well, it, dare I say it here publicly on this forum, but I'm planning to have a full draft of the dissertation done either at the end of the year or by February. And it will be, thank, thanks to you, Tom, uh, basically summoning the Evo grid. Why, are, why do we do this? How could we do this? What are the directions forward? Uh, what is the historical background for this? What are the prior art? That's that's what the dissertation is going to be. So it's a building block, or it's a it could end up becoming a publication, a foundational publication underneath this new emerging field. And then in the spring, I'll get academic review going, and present perhaps present a final dissertation, a final draft by July, and uh, maybe a presentation in the summer or the fall, and try to complete either at the end of 2010 or beginning of 2011. And that if, if timing is good for that because the dissertation itself will inform the A-Life 12 track uh, and be a publication that, that could serve as a, as a benchmark for, for this whole new sort of subfield of study, I hope. And it also fits in well with the Biota 5 time frame being probably mid-2011. Yeah, exactly. The design the design, Biota 5 design, and, and yeah, and, and at that point, um, you know, maybe we are starting something brand new here, uh, and I'm really pleased to, to read, to listen to some of the Biota Lives on what is now called EVE, uh, which was formerly EvoGrid uh, Broad, and I'm, I'm encouraged that perhaps several groups will generate, and individuals will generate XML phenotypes and and simulations will start to talk because I think what Scott Schaefer pointed out, he said, I'm less interested in the emergence of, say, a, 
an artificial origin of life, I'm interested in the emergence of behavior, and that's a higher level concept. Um, and, and that's fascinating. I, I, I can't get that out of my head, what he said. Say, say that again? In, emergence of behavior instead of... Behavior instead of this whole hard issue of getting fundamental building blocks together to 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 generate the fundamental ratcheting and the complexity to start to then eventually get to behavior. I see. Uh -huh. I think he's more interested in putting higher level blocks together and seeing Carl Sims blocky creature like seeing the behavior. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, not having to do it from absolute scratch. Uh huh. And and that's that's definitely you know that that's definitely another branch to this, I guess. Well, as I pointed out to him, I thought it was much of the same continuum, that basically you're you're talking about the same continuum but just different sections of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after decades of the evil grid running, perhaps we'll see really interesting behaviors, or maybe hopefully not decades, but I, I will let Peter comment on that. Yeah, well, huh, me? Um, I don't really know what to say. That may not be decades. <laughs> it's uh, it's daunting. I mean, I, I, I think anything, at the beginning of the virtual world period in 1995, we held a brainstorming session with our core consortium team, and we just, we went for two days, and we we wrote notes, and we said, what would happen if you had a fully developed virtual world, and you'd have avatar teleports, have people creating identities and doing all kinds of things, and you'd have large landscapes and overhead maps, and we dreamed it all up. Before. And so I think that it's about, we're about 75% of the way there in, in modern multi-user world, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years later. And I think that in a sense, we're in that stage with evil grid-like things, in the dreaming stage. And, and in, when you're dreaming, you really can't put a, a time frame on it. You just you put out a hope and a wish, and hope the universe uh, guides you there. And I think as, as Peter and, and Gerald and I discussed on Bias Live, things like OpenSim, removing the visualizer from the problem, and actually just concentrating on the simulation and you know feeding it to something like OpenSim. It's you know a revolution in thinking for a lot of artificial life developers as well. These kind of, which really, I mean, Bruce, you've been talking about for a number of years in terms of breaking the visualizer away from the simulation, but now these tools are, you know, increasingly becoming more available. I think it'll produce very interesting, uh, you know, very interesting methods of simulation where you're almost, I don't know, the descriptive artist kind of telling the uh, the painter what to paint specifically. I think we're entering a we're entering a period. We're a golden age where we actually now have a practice where we understand how to make these large, persistent, dynamic, procedurally generated, evolving, human-inhabited digital spaces. I mean, this is a golden age that's starting, and things like OpenSim are, are, and Siricata and other projects are going to fuel that. And, and the funny thing about the EvoGrid is it's so visualization, it, it swings the other way where it's virtually no visualization. It's just pure numbers and the visualization is 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 something for the human but the machine is going to observe the actual visual structure if you will and look for patterns and we're kind of we're uh, bystanders in some ways unless you want to use the 
the Intelligent Designer Edition and go in and try to make things happen, but it's 99.999% unvisual. Mm. So it's it's a completely, it's Baricelli's universe, basically, or a tiara or things like that. Um, and and uh, because in some sense the, the, the world, our bodies and the oceans and whatnot aren't visualized, if they were, you know, if we had a, there's no rendering layer in nature. You know, we we as having eyeballs and lenses and frontal cortex are creating are creating a rendering of a very tiny patch of of the surface of the earth. Very all interesting. All chemistry. That makes me think about data visualization as a um, as a tech technique for understanding nature um, and uh, understanding scientific research, which much of it is often not readily visualizable not not spatial in a sense but um but even if it's not yeah you know, there's a lot of creativity involved in in making things and bringing uh dynamic behavior and data in, in, in into ways that allow this this great occipital lobe that we all have to take that information and and digest it in a way that's very human so um in, in a sense, by having something that's not innately visual, it sets up this very interesting uh, uh, problem, challenge, uh, to, to make it intuitive. And the, the, the interesting thing is by, getting, by trying to be a, a low-level approximation of chemistry and what happens in chemistry, you, you, you go talk to chemists, and especially the protocell people, and they go, of course, we live in a world of darkness. We, we have no idea what is going on. We, we, we draw diagrams that are incredibly rough approximations of what is going on in our experiments, and, and, and we're constantly, constantly groping in this darkness to, to, to make sense in our, in our own brains about what's going on at the, the quantum and the chemical level. But is it chemistry? I mean, chemistry, it would seem to me, would, there would be a lot of a, a very visual component. Um, Watson and Crick uh, built models, and those models were part of their intuition enhancement, I believe. What what I noticed in Spain, and that that is that's you're absolutely correct. But in Spain, there were some teams that were showing these incredible mechanisms, visualization of of a protein of a molecule synthesizing identical copies of a smaller molecule, and they're showing it, and everyone's like. Oh, that's so wonderful! It looks like a little man's arm coming out and swinging, <laughs> and pulling the thing through. But the chemists would say they would sit there with their squinting and go, "Yeah, but it's not really like that. <laughs> it isn't that clean. It isn't that." And you're kind of thinking, "Wow, you know, I I think I now understand." And then the people who are actually dealing with this stuff every day are like, "It doesn't look believably believable to us because we never see this." Uh-huh. I was like, okay, well, what are you seeing down there through that that digital, that million dollar digital microscope? And and you know the the large the macro scale chemistry, the chemistry of these globules of fat that is of oils that are being used in protocell development. It's amazing watching these molecules go through pH gradients and sort of chug around on their own. They're like little machines. They're moving around and they're they're doing. They're following a pH gradient. There's 10 to the 9 molecules pulsating on their surfaces, moving around, doing the quantum Hall effect, and they're chugging away like little engines. And that's at the macro scale. Uh-huh. They keep saying, well, you can relate to this because there's 10 to the 9 molecules, 
and you can see it with your own eye, but the real stuff now, you know, in the cell, on the cell membrane, we draw these diagrams uh, and we say they're approximations. Uh. There's a mystery around how, what's really going on. And the, the chemists will never commit and say that really represents what is happening. They, they seem to be averse to doing that. Is that... Is that a level? Of, is that a level where quantum effects are are involved? I, I don't. I'm not well versed enough into that. What is that threshold where we're talking about quantum? Because I would. I could see how once you get down to that level, you're talking about a whole different notion of visualization. Yeah, and I think Peter. Peter has been looking at uh, what's been implementing bond forming and breaking and the first early precursor EvoGrid prototype and, and a test. That I'm getting some breaking up here. We can hear you. Okay, good. It might just be on my end. Um, well, that's the interesting thing because uh, I approached this, this simulation, the ego grid, you know, we've got atoms flying around and they're going to form bonds and break bonds and change into different chemicals and so forth. Um, and I approached it with uh, more or less a high school understanding of chemistry where you've got your little balls and your little sticks and they're all holding them together and that's your atom and you go, oh, isn't that nice and neat? Um, <laughs> And then I started reading about how the bonds actually form and, you know, what the mathematics is behind the bond formation, and I'm going, it shouldn't be too bad. Um, and after doing a lot of research, it basically came down to uh, quantum mechanics, that they have to simulate all the electrons and so forth to, in order to correctly calculate the forces. Um, and electrons don't just sit there and form these nice little bonds. That's just a conceptual thing, and that um, at the the level that you actually need to get an accurate formation and deformation and so forth is, is very different to what we're used to seeing as a model of a chemical, where we're used to seeing nice little jointed balls that are sitting together and overlapping a little bit. Um, that the, as, as soon as you start trying to do bonds, you've got, to, you've got to model your electron interaction because... And your electrons don't just sort of sit there and you imagine these little balls whizzing around the outside like you see the pictures of the, of the atom when they're talking about nuclear physics and you have an atom with all these electrons whipping around it. And apparently it's nothing like that, but it looks neat. neat. Mm. And that's, it, it, they, they talk about shells and areas of force and so forth, which would, and I, I'm, I'm trying to visualize what I'm reading from these descriptions and I'm just going, I don't quite see what they're trying to say. Sorry, I've said this in the past, Peter, but as a physics graduate, my concern with regards to the way you describe it is the kind of intrepid fear that someone usually gets when they approach the worst possible explanation of quantum mechanics. The whole purpose of quantum mechanics is actually really, really simple, and if you throw all the formulae and all the concepts aside, it's just about solving, solving exact problems. So what you see with regards to, you know, visualizing sticks and balls and all this kind of stuff is just propaganda. So throw that away to start off with. Liberate yourself from that. And think of, think of the principles like they're like jelly almost, but they do glue together. So they don't have a solid physical form as you describe it, but they will ultimately connect. Obviously, it's just a different mapping of the model. That's um, sort of not what I was trying to say. Um, I mean, I, un I understand that 
is but well, I, I, well, I believe I understand what you're saying. It was more when I tried to get a concrete uh, set of rules for it. I mean, as a generality, we'd go, oh yeah, they they will form an agency and so forth. Um, and I was trying to I was trying to get an understanding of what sort of rules were needed, not just that rules, because what we um, part of the Evo grid is we're exploring different rule sets and different um, you know constants and so forth. But I still had to have an idea of the sort of rules that would need to be included, and that was when I started researching it. And I'm going, well, I think I know what they're talking about, but um, this is complicated. Well, it appears complicated, but really, I mean, the whole notion of energy walls with regards to, you know, transitions and these kind of things is all, it's all to do with how you visualize it. This is uh, the kind of thing that I was discussing with Bruce when he first started talking about the Evo grid as being uh, a kind of artificial chemistry simulation. Do you think, Bruce, I mean, when we discussed this initially, we talked about possible worlds as being a, a you know, best possible solution. Do you think what Peter's describing with regards to his, his own mapping of an understanding of quantum mechanics physics, do you think it would be better to create a kind of new physics which fitted in some way and remove the Evo grid from the kind of explicit boundaries of, of the natural world? Yeah, in fact, uh, Penny Boston um, and several other the advisors on the advisory team have told us, don't try to go for simulating a real chemistry, real aqueous chemistry, because you need a whole planet to do what you're trying to do. And you need a lot of time that goes beyond the length of a grant or a human lifetime. They said, they've always said, do something that is in the abstract and that allows you to vary the physics parameters in real time uh, to, to try to track, to, to get the emergent behavior you're looking for earlier than trying to be faithful to a chemical simulation. And I think it was interesting talking with Peter last time with Gerald de Jong on the line was that Gerald provided a very interesting example from Buckminster Fuller with regards to the 12 three-dimensional kind of nearest neighbor oranges in a, a fruit stall kind of stacking. I mean, I think these kind of models with regards to artificial chemistry actually probably yield more interesting results than trying to grasp, you know, contemporary quantum mechanics and model those, you know, those realities. I mean, the beautiful thing with regards to what Gerald described is that it might, you get carbon chemistry for free. I mean, the, the, the mathematical model described by Gerald basically will give you everything that you need for carbon or carbon-like chemistry to come out of it, including some of the um, you know, uncertainties, but also some of the energy groupings that you get through quantum mechanics. So I think it was an interesting example. I mean, certainly coming from my physics background, thinking about all the things you get for free by just using a different mathematical model for describing the kind of chemical interactions. Yeah, and in fact, it's those sort of tricks and shortcuts uh, that we're going to have to introduce over the years to to get closer and closer. And yet the chemists are saying, please, you know, please make something that's close to a tool that we might be able to use. I mean, so there's definitely a there's a there's a push and a pull, but at least there's a demand. I mean, Certainly. the theoreticians are saying, show us the emergence. Don't don't listen to the chemists. And the chemists are saying. We need your help. We need tools, you know, and we, we'll never get emergence. We'll never understand what we're looking at unless you give us something that represents what we're seeing in down the beaker. 
But there has to be a pragmatic medium. I mean, this is the whole point with the Evo grid is that ultimately you can't, you can't keep both factions happy. You have to basically tide the course straight down the middle and, and do what needs to be done. And in fact, what Penny said is you, if you show ratcheting up complexity, you can say to everybody, look, in principle it's possible to, that this can happen on its own and, and it's ratcheting up and we can characterize it. Now we put more computing power. Now we get more models involved, modelers and more physics, and we're going to gradually converge. The tool is going to become more and more like real chemistry over the decades. And that same thing happened with physical simulation with rover, you know, net Mars rover stuff and the simulation of robotics on surfaces of planets. I mean, that was so crude in the 80s. I mean, they could barely do anything other than a, a, a mesh contact with another mesh. And now it's, you know, two decades, two and a half decades later, it's, it's on the verge of being use, useful for designing real robots. Uh, but it took, you know, decades. Um, but it didn't stop the original people from, from going for it. Certainly. And I think, I mean, getting Gerald involved with the Evo grid in terms of the fact that he already has this as a mathematical model, I mean, if he could slot that in as a, a kind of chemical, you know, chemical approximation, I mean, that's a wonderful start in terms of you being able to kind of run with carbon chemistry. I mean, ideally, you build an Evo grid that is so pluggable and so open with sliders and, and, and pluggable components that you say, look, do you want to try your artificial universe, your toy universe out with your 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 shortcuts and your tricks of the trade and and your ideas and your brilliant insights to try to get emergence to happen, you should be able to 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 set up a simulation and set up all the physics uh, and and try your experiment. So there will be like physics experimenters and there will be people who experiment with the starting conditions or the the elements within the simulation. There's all kinds of ways, and if it was open enough, you'd have teams all over the world that were were competing to try to get the annual ratcheting prize or whatever it might be. Uh, we've discussed prizes in the past, Bruce. I don't think they yield the right kind of solutions. Right. I think there needs to be a way to recognize all the teams universally and can kind of continue to usher them through rather than create some kind of false competition. Yeah, and, you know, ideally uh, the evil grid over time or its future incarnations will be general tool that is used in chemistry, it's used in theoretical studies and complexity. It's you know, it, it it you know, that that would alone be enough, I mean, to satisfy those those two groups. I mean you're 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 tackling two of the most gigantic uh, you know, unsolved or or difficult hard problems in science and engineering. And down the road if you can if you can simulate a real a whole cell in real time, you know, with hundred million cores running. If you can do whole cell simulation, you can take a crack at cancer and things. So it's, it's a non, it's, it's a non-trivial, non, it's a not insignificant capability that you're aiming at.